0: Listener supported WNYC Studios.
1: This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
0: I have a certain skill set, Miss Dunbar. For me, turning over a new leaf is using my skills for the right reasons.
1: I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. Eyes? Perfect. It's always nice to have a man's opinion. On House of Cards. Not your average recap show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media, and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one is devoted to Episode 5, which we're calling Marking Their Territory. And I'm joined by Patty Solis-Doyle, president of Solis Strategies and former senior advisor and campaign manager to Hillary Clinton and former chief of staff to VP nominee Joe Biden. Patty, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Fred Kaplan, War Stories columnist for Slate, author of The Insurgents and Wizards of Armageddon, former Moscow bureau chief for the Boston Globe, and as it happens, my husband. Hello, sweetie. Hello. <laughs> so, in this episode, we get some more information on what Frank's America Works project is really about, what this whole Jordan Valley subplot is doing, and also a pretty impressive power pee. First of all, let's start with the domestic. Frank's in the Oval Office, being read Title I of the Stafford Act on the definition of emergency.
0: Emergency means any occasion or instance for which, in the determination of the president... Determined by the president. Any instance? As long as we can make the argument that this saves lives it protects health and safety.
1: Frank wants to fund his America Works program initially with FEMA money because he can't get anything from Congress... How implausible is this?
2: Maybe the most implausible thing I've seen on television this year. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I was about to say the same thing and pretty ballsy. I mean, this could really blow up big time to be using FEMA money. if There could be an actual
2: disaster there would be a court challenge or something. You know, I mean I I took a look at the Stafford Act, which I must admit I'd never heard of before this show. I guess it was it was done during the Reagan administration. The idea was to give the president the discretion to determine whether something is a disaster. And since then, the number of presidentially determined disasters has gone up. But, you know, it's still what you or I would call a disaster, you know, a hurricane. Maybe it's not a hurricane or a tornado. Maybe it's just a, a big windstorm or something. But to call, you know, unemployment a disaster would, I think, be taking it way, way beyond what anyone had intended it to be.
1: Let's now go directly into your bailiwick, Patty. Oh, uh-huh. Heather Dunbar, the Solicitor General, is running for president, and on her arm has been the husband of Michael Corrigan, the gay rights activist who was arrested in Russia in episode four. She goes on the Meredith Vieira show with him, John Pasternak, who'll join her at every event. She says until Corrigan is released,
3: you know gay rights is controversial in many parts of the country. Do you think that appearing with Corrigan's husband could possibly hurt you? I think the American people want a candidate who doesn't dodge, who
1: is truthful about where she stands so uh, is this a good strategy, do you
3: think? No, not particularly. It's quite a commitment to to say that she will take him to every event she does until his husband is released. I in mean Mississippi
2: is she going to go there? <laughs> Exactly.
3: <laughs> you know, and, and and in some parts of Iowa, he's not going to be too popular either. So yeah. to make your campaign all about a single issue, I just think, is is not smart. But does it make her seem
2: more or less cynical? I don't know. Are there any politicians on this show who aren't cynical? Some of them are, are very shrewd cynics, but I don't know if there are any that are genuine... Are
3: you talking about real life or are you talking about House of Cards? (laughs) Well, let me ask you, would you work for her, Patty? No, I would work for Claire Underwood.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just because it would be more fun?
3: I like her. I I think she's pretty fantastic. I think she's probably the smarter of the couple. And, you know, when the Russian ambassador really angered her by complimenting her dress... Oh, yeah. (laughs) That scene
1: was (laughs) nightmarish. I will get this resolution passed. Don't underestimate my ability
0: or desire to do so. I've indulged your enthusiasm long enough. You've bit off more than you can chew, Claire. Leave this to the professionals and let your little resolution die a painless death. The truth is, you have no business being ambassador any more than I do being first lady. That's a very nice dress, by the way.
2: Oh, snap. (laughs) (laughs) I love that scene. Quite honestly, I think the Russian has a point.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but what does she do? She goes back home. She splits her cigarette with her husband, the president, tells him, yes, I still love you. And oh, by the way, I'm going to need an executive order for you to order U.N. troops. And she goes back to the Russian ambassador, makes him watch her while she pees. With the
2: door open. (laughs) With the door open. Lyndon Johnson did this all the time.
1: (laughs) I mean, it was fantastic. She basically said, screw you.
2: (laughs) What is that Johnson story exactly, Fred? Well, he would be going over some point with with an aide like Bill Moyers, I think, was one of them. Go into the bathroom and have him follow, and then be um, sitting there while while the guy was briefing him and doing a lot more than just peeing. By the way, <laughs> and it was just to show who was in charge. It was a, just a rank act of humiliation, and this happened a few times. He knew exactly what he was doing, and my guess is that whoever wrote this heard about or read about these stories with Johnson, and, and probably Claire did, too, and that's who she was emulating. It was the ultimate power play, like, who's on top now, sucker?
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, and it's even more extreme because, you know, at least men... When they go into a bathroom, they at least watch each other pee standing up. We women, don't watch
2: each other, do well, we? Well,
1: all right, but you're next to each other. You're you. Whereas women, they have stalls, they have doors for her to leave it open. Vulture has been doing recaps of these, and it asked the question: What is with the Underwood? power peeing. In the first (laughs) episode, he pees on his father's grave. Now she's peeing in the toilet, but kind of metaphorically on Alexi. I mean, what's going on here? Right. But I just I thought
3: that was just such a great scene, which is why I would definitely work for Claire Underwood. <laughs> and and you have to love the staff person too, who is outside the restroom. Oh no, please, just that would go have been in. you,
2: by the way. You know? <laughs> it <would have> been.
1: <laughs> okay, so now we're gonna jump back again. The Underwood administration's grand plan is to make his erstwhile congressional ally Jackie run against Heather Dunbar to siphon off votes from her, Now, this is a very complex plan. Jackie is supposed to see the light about America Works and then join Frank as the VP nominee and all of that. I was speaking to a friend who worked in the Clinton White House, and he said that the longer he spent there, the less he could believe in conspiracies because there's just not enough focus and not enough consistency in the staff to carry out a complicated conspiracy I mean, this fake Jackie campaign, could any president pull that off? Well, look, there are plenty of people who run for
3: president, not so much because they think they're going to win, but because they're sort of auditioning for the number 2 slot.
2: They usually do that on their own, though. They're not they're not put up to Exactly.
3: It. I've never heard of anything nor have I ever been a part of <laughs> A blatant conspiracy like this. A conspiracy like this is really very, very difficult to pull off, particularly in this day and age where anybody with a cell phone is a reporter and can catch (laughs) meetings, can catch – emails now
1: and phone calls. Well, speaking of reporters, we have a new face. This is Kate Baldwin, who's digging around the story on FEMA. She goes to talk to the FEMA director, Arnold Silva, and she goes all deep throat on it, or he does anyway.
0: People's lives are in the balance, and he doesn't care. Our projections for the next 12 months... We're in a La Nina phase, which means falling temperatures in the Pacific. We expect at least two major landfalls this season. Homes destroyed, billions in damage, tens of thousands without power. And that's just hurricanes. If we get a major earthquake or flood or forest fire, it's all in there.
2: (laughs) I don't know. You know, I have meetings like this, I'd say, once every two weeks with sources.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What I found over the top about it was... You don't need a deep-throat character to go from, okay, he's taking all the FEMA money. What if there's a hurricane?
2: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't need to be a confidential source. It's <laughs> just kind of one plus one. Although it would be more plausible if it was like some uh, deputy assistant secretary, who's like a career right. guy, some weather geek, you know, who's watching, monitoring all the perfect storm elements that are coming.
1: Frank is really upset that these two front page stories laying out Underwood's FEMA funds grab and firing of the Homeland Security Secretary. But the White House still believes that America Works will sell itself once people start getting jobs. But to capture hearts and minds, and here's where I think if there's anything that is the most implausible in this episode, this would be my nomination. He thinks a book it's going to sell the plan. And he decides to get this guy who wrote a great book in his youth. Uh, you know, I, I, this mm. just strikes me as strange. When was the last time a president commissioned?
2: Clinton with Taylor Clinton. Branch. Oh,
1: Remember, well, it's not entirely
2: implausible. but Clinton, in fact, I, my guess is that's who the model of this is. Clinton brought Taylor Branch in had conversations with him about things going on at the time yeah. with the understanding that the book wouldn't be written until after. But then he kind of screwed Taylor. He, I think Clinton kept the tapes, and then he didn't hand over the tapes, so Taylor had to rely on his memory of what was talked about anyway. And I, I don't think the book did anything really. But in that case, though, Clinton had known Taylor Branch for quite a while. He was a, a trusted character.
3: Everything Fred said is absolutely right, but for Frank Underwood to do this is absolutely crazy. I mean, it's too dangerous to bring in a writer to write your biography. When you've thrown people off the train tracks
1: and had people murdered, and it's just, it's going to get out. On the other hand, there are people who have written books that have said that uh, the Clintons had people (laughs) murdered. (laughs) Yes, but it wasn't true. But here, it's actually not so much of a memoir. It's sort of like FDR getting someone to write a book about the New Deal.
2: Well, it's like Kennedy with Arthur Schlesinger. That's another example. Arthur Schlesinger was sort of the palace historian. But you know, he, he picked Schlesinger because Schlesinger had written this great trilogy about FDR's presidency, and he actually brought Schlesinger on as, as an advisor. I mean, he didn't really listen to anything that Schlesinger said, but Schlesinger was preparing to write a biography while he was alive, and then after Kennedy died, wrote this book, A Thousand Days, which, you know, it's nicely written in there. But you know, in retrospect, we know that he just basically wrote whatever Kennedy wanted him to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the book is complete, yeah. you know, fantasy.
1: This guy is, is trying to claim his independence,
2: at least. You know, it's dangerous to hire a novelist to do this.
1: Right. And Underwood's
3: choice of him was not based even on his novel. It was based on some write-up he did for a video game, which was crazy. I
2: think that's pretty good, really. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, we don't know this writer's backstory yet. We don't know what he's capable of.
2: If Barack Obama called me and said he wanted me to write a book about him based on my <laughs> my review of the Sim Audio 740p preamplifier, <laughs> I, I'm there. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm bought off from the beginning. Fred
1: reviews uh,
2: audio kitten on the side, <laughs> just
1: so you know. This is On House of Cards. We'll hear more from Fred Kaplan and Patti Solis Doyle in just a moment. Okay, now we get to maybe our first moment to understand this whole thing that Claire is deeply involved in trying to pull off this sort of Jordan Valley explainer. And I'm going to play a piece of that. It's not coming from Claire. It's actually coming from a foreign policy expert that the seeming turncoat Doug, Frank's former henchman, has put Heather Dunbar in touch with. So this is this foreign policy expert explaining to Heather what this Jordan Valley thing is all about.
0: Everyone gets hung up on this little patch of land, 10 miles by 40, but you have to look outwards. Past Jordan and Syria, past Iraq, here, to the Caucasus. That's Russia's sphere of influence. They don't see the peacekeeping force as a Middle East issue. They see it as strategic deployment of U.S. troops less than a thousand miles from their southern border.
2: So you're saying Corrigan's a pawn, a play for leverage?
0: More of a first salvo. Moscow wants to show it's serious about fighting this resolution. Now, if I had to guess, Underwood tried to bring Russia into the mix during the summit, get him involved early on as partners. And when Petrov didn't play ball, Underwood went on the offensive, which is a huge gamble. Tell me how. Nobody wants UN troops there, not the Israelis, not the Palestinians, not the Arabs. They're playing along because the U.S. is pressuring them. But just one little thing needs to go wrong, and you've got a tinderbox where everyone's holding matches.
2: Well, it's very strange. You know, I've never heard—I mean, there is a Jordan Valley. It's this big swath of land in kind of around what we'd call the West Bank. I I looked it up. I googled Jordan Valley, and that phrase is used so infrequently that the third listing is the Jordan Valley Community Health Center in Springfield, (laughs) Missouri— It's, you know, but I I would have thought Gaza would have been a better choice or maybe something involving Syria. I mean, it is true that Russia views the Middle East as kind of a buffer and they're very precious about their allies. Now, they used to have a lot of allies in the Middle East. You know, they had not only Syria, but Egypt, Iraq before Saddam Hussein fell. It was a real – the Middle East was kind of this territory for proxy wars and not so much anymore. They have Syria. That's really about it. The whole kind of battle of wits between Putin or Petrov and Underwood is kind of an anachronism in this episode.
1: I don't think it's an anachronism. We're seeing them butting heads all the time. I mean, maybe it's not, you know, in Jordan, but in Syria and in Ukraine. And uh, they just more or less threw a dart at the Middle East. They just, you know, made yeah, that Russia up. but Russia
2: doesn't really have much influence there anymore. But this is about them being a thousand miles from the
1: Russian border. They yeah. can see <laughs> Russia from their house.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there are a lot of well, things well. that are much closer to the Russian border than that. It's a little weird. For
1: me,
3: this story... Wasn't so much about the specifics of the Middle East and Russia, but much more about Claire Underwood. And this is a high risk proposition for the Underwood administration. And if it fails, it's going to be Claire Underwood's fault, the First Lady's fault, who is a fantastic first lady, well-educated, smart, but really has no foreign policy experience. And how could the commander in chief put his own wife in this position, which, you know, harkens back to, again, the Clinton administration when President Clinton put Hillary Clinton in charge of health
1: care reform. Did you at any point think that the president and the first lady, the first couple were wrong to put Hillary in charge of it, making herself such a target for the Congress? No,
3: I don't think it was wrong to have chosen her. Back when she was the first lady of Arkansas, she had led the education reform battle for her husband. So it was not like it was not done before within their partnership.
2: My recollection is that Bill Clinton thought this was understood as part of the deal. I mean, after he won the election, he said, you get two for one. He viewed it as a partnership, and she probably did too. Even that, though, is different from, you know, he didn't make her Secretary of Health Education and Welfare. Right. But I do remember, I remember this story that I think one day Chelsea Clinton got sick at school, and she went to the nurse's office. And the nurse said, well, should I call your mother? And she goes, no, you better call my father. My mother's way too busy. And then she called her father, and they got into this 20-minute conversation about something to do with being a nurse, or I forget what. But um, I think part of it is because, I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like this before.
3: Yeah, having been there and having lived through it, I absolutely agree. But I have to say, 20 years later, I'm so glad that It happened because, you know, there's no real job description for the job of First Lady, right? You do have to host certain parties and you do have to pick the Christmas decorations, but there's no real other job description. Having had Hillary there doing what she did, I think, really sort of opens it up for any future First Lady. Certainly opened it up for Claire Underwood, right? (laughs) I mean, would we be watching this now were it not for the... Eight years in the 90s that the Clintons were in office.
1: But she is magnificently ruthless, isn't she? Claire? Yeah.
3: Or Hillary. Or Hillary.
1: (laughs) 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 Let me ask you one other question, which I'm guessing you won't answer, but I'm going to throw it out anyway because when will I get the chance again? Mm -hmm. This marriage. Which one? (laughs) The one that we're watching on screen is depicted how the critics of the Clintons, and even some of their advocates, have depicted their marriage, a political marriage, one where ambitions are joined. Affection is, is kind of fitfully expressed, but they spend lots of time apart. Do you see parallels there? And if so, what kind? Hmm. How do I answer that? So, I
3: think that the Underwood marriage is a real partnership with mutual respect and admiration and love. So, I see those parallels in the in the relationship between Bill and Hillary Clinton. I mean, they are each other's strong sounding boards and sound advisors and there's a lot of love between them. Although I don't I don't see a lot of love of Claire towards Frank Underwood. I do see a lot of love from Frank to Claire.
1: Do you think that Hillary ever said to Bill, I'm sorry I ever made you president.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But there's that great joke, Bill and Hillary Clinton driving a car and at a gas station and filling up the tank. And uh, Bill Clinton asked something along the lines of, Gosh, would you have married me if I were pumping gas? And she's like, Yes, because you'd be president. <laughs>
1: Patty, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Patty Solis-Doyle is the president of Solis Strategies and former senior advisor and campaign manager to Hillary Clinton and former chief of staff to VP nominee at the time, Joe Biden. And also, Fred, thanks very much. Thank you. He is the War Stories columnist for Slate, author of The Insurgents, former Moscow bureau chief of the Boston Globe, and as it happens, my husband... On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Claire Tennisgetter and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media. On our next episode, professor of international affairs Nina Khrushcheva and host of the Savage Love podcast, Dan Savage, join me to talk about Russian prisons and sexual politics.
0: To meet a gay person in the House of Cards universe, we have to go to a prison in Moscow? There are none in D.C.?